Well, good morning. My name is Jeff Blanco. Some people do know me as Jeff White from time to time. Um, it's, it's always a joy and pleasure to be with you. And uh, like Chuck said, I will be uh, next year transitioning from my role as the assistant pastor at Las Tierras for Sister Church here and moving to uh, be planting the RUF at UTEP. And this is especially uh, a great work of Christ the King and Las Tierras. And, and I just want to thank you uh, for the art fundraiser and for all of your support for that, how uh, God worked through that in a great way. And so I'm just very grateful for you all as, as a congregation. And so um, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 17. If it's in your bulletin or in your Bible, you can look with me in Luke chapter 17. And we're going to be starting in verses 5, going to 19. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 5 of Luke 17. The apostle said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. And they lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go. Show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, he turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise, go your way, your faith has made you well. Let us pray. Lord, as we look at your word, might you give us the eyes of faith. We might bow before you, that we might praise you with our lips, Lord Jesus. And recognize that you are truly more beautiful. You are purer than anything else that we can see. And so, Lord, grant us faith by your Spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I was recently binge-watching um, Stranger Things on Netflix. You may know this show. It's a 1980s-era sci-fi, which has a lot of nostalgia if you remember the 80s well. Um, and the protagonist in Stranger Things, I'm not going to tell you much about it, but the protagonist is this uh, uh, middle school-age girl named Eleven. And Eleven has uh, superpowers. She has telekinetic powers, to be specific. 
So that means she can move physical objects just by mental power. So you see in, in the show that uh, she can move cars and they fly. She can levitate people. She can move all of these things just by the power of her mind. This reminds me of a time when I was in middle school myself, and I remember reading this passage right here, and it said, the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted, and it would be planted in the sea. And so I went to my backyard, and I looked at one of my parents' trees, and I said, in the name of the Lord, be uprooted. With my mind powers, I was going to move this tree. Well, it turns out I don't have telekinetic abilities. Now, if we read this passage and we look at it, we can misunderstand Jesus' teaching here about faith. To think that it is about the power of your mind, that it's about telekinesis. Christian faith faith bears no resemblance, actually, to stranger things. That yet, at the same time, Jesus is saying that there is a mustard seed faith that brings the power of God. That there is a saving faith that moves Jesus, and we see it evident in this leper. You see, this passage, Luke 17, verses 7 through 19, goes on to explain what faith is not by the example of this parable. And then he explains what this saving faith, this mulberry-moving, tiny faith is in the story of the Samaritan leper. And one of the things that I think we see in this passage is that faith is not about obedience or duty, but it is simply a plea to Jesus for mercy. And that faith then that motivates us is gratitude for this mercy that we have received. So the first thing we look at is that faith that moves God is not about our duty, our sacrifice, or our obedience. Now we know that it is very true that Uh, Faith in Christ does produce the fruit of obedience in our lives. But it's easy to start thinking in a way that our obedience or our sacrifice is the faith that moves God. It's easy to, to start thinking that faith equals obedience. And the context in this passage is when the apostles have just heard the radical teaching of Jesus about forgiveness. And they say, we cannot be that obedient by ourselves. Lord, we need you to strengthen our faith. And they understand, in a sense, that that faith does empower our obedience to Jesus and his commands. It is possible to start confusing faith with obedience, the faith that comes out of obedience as faith itself. So perhaps at this point, as they hear Jesus' teaching, about mustard seed faith, they say, hmm, little faith? Well, Jesus, we gave up our fishing careers to follow you. Jesus, we've given up everything. We've followed you everywhere. Look at our faith. If you measure our faith by our sacrifice, by our obedience, look at it. Surely our sacrifice, surely our faith, that will bring God's power down. That will move God. When you and I when we give of our time, when we give of our money, when we give of our effort, when we refrain from sin, we want to say, I want to say, Jesus, look at my faith. Look at my sacrifice. You owe me. 
respond. We can think this way. But Jesus is about to say that it is actually absurd to think that our obedience moves God. And so if it's absurd that our obedience moves God, we can't conceive of faith itself as being the sacrifice or obedience that God hears. You see, Jesus says it doesn't make sense to think that your obedience moves God if you understand your relationship to Him. And so this is why he goes on to explain this parable. Look at me with verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table with me? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterwards, you can go eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Because he was obedient? So you also, when you have done all you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. You see, Jesus is saying something here about our relationship to God in this parable. He is saying that God is the master and we are his servants. He is the creator and we are his creation. He does not owe us anything. We owe him our very life. And so even if you kept all of God's law and you have done everything that is right in the world, it doesn't move God. Because serving God perfectly is exactly what is your duty. Doing your mortal duty doesn't get you a seat at God's heavenly table is what he's saying here. Imagine you go to a restaurant. And the waiter takes your, or, your order and they dutifully do it. They put the order into the cook. They bring it out on time and they did your steak just the way you wanted it, medium. And there's a little bit of pink. And they did it great. And then they come and sit down with you and they say, so what did you get me? What are you going to say? You're going to say, I mean, I'm probably going to pay you. But just because you followed the orders, just because you took my order and you did it right, doesn't mean that you get invited to dinner with me. That was just what you were supposed to do. This is what Jesus is saying about our relationship to God. Or imagine you're in the army. Some of you can probably imagine this. Or you've been there. Then you have orders to move a bunch of boxes from point A to point B. Or you're supposed to drive a truck from one place to the other and you're supposed to be there early. Or you're supposed to uh, take out the bad guys. And you do it. You take the boxes from one place to the other and they're precisely in the place where they're supposed to be. You drive the truck from one place to the other and you get there early, which is on time. And you neutralize the enemy. And you did everything you were commanded to do and you did it right. Verse 9. Does the commander thank the soldier because he did what was commanded? Is the brigadier general going to invite you to his house for a barbecue just because you followed orders? I, don't, I mean, I'm not in the army, but I don't think that's how it works. In the same way, verse 10, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We were unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. You keep the Ten Commandments? That is good. 
You owe God and you owe your fellow humans obedience to God's law. It's our human duty. And so even if we keep the commandments perfectly, God still doesn't owe us anything. And certainly not heaven. We don't get brownie points with God for our obedience. We don't get bargaining chips with Him for them. See, obedience is what God requires of us. And it's what we owe Him. So it cannot gain His favor to His heart or to His ear. Now, every one of us in some way has resented this very idea because it depicts God as a master. It it depicts Him as a king. And we oftentimes don't like the idea of God as our king, God as our master. We oftentimes will want to say, well, I'd rather think of Jesus, you know, as, or God as a good friend. Maybe like a teddy bear. We really do not like to think of God as uh, a master, and especially we don't like to think that we are his servants and that we owe him obedience. And if we were to take it even further, we would rather say, God, I am the master and you are my servant. You're the one who is supposed to serve me. There's a show called, uh, that was called Wife Swap that was on TV for a while. You may have watched it before. It's where moms switch families for a week. And one mom named Joy uh, visited this bacon-loving family in North Carolina. And she took away their bacon, which is not a very enjoyable thing to do. But she didn't know that she was dealing with a little boy named King Curtis. And she took away the bacon, and King Curtis pouted in his room, and the cameras came and watched him and see what he had to say. And King Curtis said this about Joy. She thinks out of the blue that she's a smart little girl, that she can do whatever she wants. No, that's not how she can do it in our family. She's not like she's the queen and we're the sorry people. (laughs) And then King Curtis walks out of his room and he goes and looks at Joy and she says, Joy, I have been nice to you, but now I am coming to the edge. (laughs) And you see, the heart that resents the idea of God as a master says this exact same thing. See, God... I have been nice to you. I have kept your, your laws, but now I am coming to the edge. And we flip the relationship upside down where we say, God, I am the master and you are my servant. And this rebellion that is in our heart that we don't like to say God is our master, that is why Jesus died on the cross. In another parable, in Matthew 21, Jesus says this, here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it and he dug a wine press in it and he built a tower and he leased it to tenants and he went to another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. You see, he had provided all this for his servants, for his tenants. And the tenants, uh, when the season for for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and they stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. 
this is a parable about Jesus' death and the reason for it. You see, what we are saying here is that although we owe God everything that we, good that we have, it's all from Him, yet we want to be the master of it all. We don't want to say we're tenants. And this impulse runs so deep in our hearts that we will not stop until we have killed the Master's Son. And so dutiful obedience does not move God. In fact, when it is done thinking that God owes us something for it, we are putting ourselves in the position of master and he the servant. And that actually is why Jesus died. And that is sin. So if that doesn't move God, what moves God? We're given a real life example in the next verse. Verses 11 through 19. The faith that moves the Lord. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. And they lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go, show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. And then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, he turned back. He praised God with a loud voice and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Your footnote in your Bible says it is also just as easily translated. Your faith has saved you. This man has saving faith. So what is it that moves God? The faith that moves God is a plea to Jesus, the Master, for mercy. What moves God to hear and to save us is a total reliance upon the mercy that we cannot earn and do not deserve. See, these men here were lepers. They are really the the original walking dead. Their whole life smells of rot and, and of decay. And you see, oftentimes in the Old Testament, leprosy is a punishment for rebellion against God. Miriam, Joab's family, Gehazi, King Uzziah, and in general, it's given as a threat for disobedience. And so you see, the main curse of leprosy was the curse of spiritual uncleanness more than the physical disease itself, although that is a horrible curse as well. But the main thing is the curse of spiritual uncleanness. And this is seen in the fact that eventually these men were described as cleansed. They're cleansed. See, leprosy was the presenting symptom of a total life of decay and rot. It was shame. It was your body that was being decayed. It was this relational isolation from the covenant people, from the people of God. They're separated. But most importantly, it was spiritual separation from God that they could not go and worship Him. And so they understood how miserable their situation was. And so verse 12 and 13, they stood at a distance and they lifted up their voices and they said, Jesus, Master, have mercy upon us. What else can they do but call upon the Master for mercy? They understand. They understand, especially this one, that they do not deserve cleansing and they certainly cannot earn it. He saw them. 
They called out for mercy and Jesus saw them and he said, go and talk to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Brian Chapel says, Jesus shows pity to those who have nothing to claim but desperation. He is moved. Jesus is moved by a desperate cry for help. So what is the message to us? It is that our God is not moved by the deeds that we trophy, but by the desperation that we acknowledge as our own. He's moved by the desperation that we acknowledge as our own. That we need mercy. And one of the ten, he really understands. He immediately turns back and he falls on his face at the feet of Jesus and he thanks him. And we find out as the story goes on that this man who has come to Jesus and he falls at his feet is none other than a Samaritan. And by coming to Jesus and bowing before him, it would, he's letting it be known who he is. That he is a Samaritan, a half-breed person who doesn't worship God. He's not a Jew. He doesn't worship God. He's outside. He lets his desperate situation be known. And Jesus says to this one, go, your faith has saved you. See, it is Him who has saving faith. And so the question for us is, what did His saving faith look like? What did it look like? He cried to Jesus, Master, have mercy, and He fell at the feet of Jesus, acknowledging that He did not deserve mercy. See, this man is a reminder that the tiny mustard seed faith that moves God is simply a plea to the Je- Jesus, the Master, for mercy. That God is moved by the desperation that we acknowledge as our own as this man fell before the feet of Jesus. And you think about it, if you're a parent and you have a rebellious child, how do you deal with them? Imagine they come home one night, and they say, and they're rebelling, and they say, Mom, it's not a big deal. Besides, I do my chores. I'm getting good grades. I won't do it again. It's not a big deal. Do their pleas, uh, their pr- protests of their innocence and their promises to do better, does that m- move you? No. It's when they come home and, and they say, Mom, Dad, I am sorry, I have hurt you. I need your forgiveness. That is what moves your heart. That is what brings you to embrace them. And so it is with God. Saving faith that moves God is simply a plea that I need your help, Lord Jesus. I need your mercy. That's what moves our our Savior. That's what moves God. As the hymn says, it come ye sinners poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able, He is able, He is willing, doubt no more. Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you wait until you're better, you will never come at all. Because it's not the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners like you and me, that Jesus came to call. 
He just as this leper man, he couldn't cleanse himself. He couldn't make himself better before coming to Jesus, before crying out. So it is with us. We can't make our lives better. We can't clean our act up. We can't get it all right. It's simply a plea to Jesus for mercy that God hears. And so we may ask, though, is there anything that I contribute to this salvation, to this relationship with God? Is there anything I contribute at all? What do I bring to the table? Well, you and I, we contribute the sin that Jesus died for on the cross. Just as this man, this leper, all he contributed was his leprosy. And the Scriptures even tell us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, that even the faith that saves us is a gift from God. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift. The faith that saves us, we can't even contribute that. It's not something that we say that we bring to the table. It doesn't even count as our contribution. And so do you see the depth of the mercy and grace of Jesus here? Do you see it? The Samaritan man, he saw it. And so he, he saw the mercy and it motivated him in his life. He was motivated by this mercy. Verses 15 and 16, look at what he does as he starts to see it. What Jesus has done for him, the mercy he says in verse 15, then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, he turned back praising God with a loud voice and he fell on his fa- face at Uh, before Jesus' feet, and he gave him thanks. See, of all the ten of these, um, these lepers, it is this grateful one who becomes Christ's disciple. Because Jesus says, weren't there ten cleansed? What about all of the nine? It was only this one who came back, this grateful one who came to praise God. Do you see how gratitude defines the disciples of Jesus. Gratitude. Notice that just as this man had previously he had cried loudly for mercy, what does he do in verse 15? He's, now he's, it says he's praising the Lord with a loud voice. He praised God with a loud voice. His, his praises reflect the level of his previous desperation as he cried loudly for mercy. Now he praises loudly with gratitude, praising God. You see, the Christian life is a life of gratitude and joy for the mercy that we have received from Jesus. That's the Christian life. It's joy. It's the joy of being made well that drives this man to glorify God with his mouth and to bow before Jesus with his life. Does joy drive you to praise God and to bow before Jesus? Because appreciation for mercy, appreciation of the mercy that you have received is a powerful motivator in our life. To understand uh, the mercy that we have received is powerful in motivating us. Joy is powerful. I was talking to a college student um, from UTEP who had gone to uh, EPCC before, and he grew up in a non-Christian family. In fact, he described himself as a punk rocker. 
not that there's anything wrong with punk rockers, but but uh, that was part of his description. And he had several uncles, five of them, who uh, were either murdered in cartels in Juarez or overdosed from drugs. And that didn't uh, convince him of the Christian faith. But he says one day he was brought to faith in Christ even though he wasn't even seeking God. And as he came and it was growing, this is the end of high school, he started wanting to read God's Word. And so he took the Bible everywhere he went and he got on a bus in downtown El Paso and he's sitting in the bus and uh, he's reading his Bible. The bus stops downtown and this guy gets on the bus and he's got tattoos all over his face. Textbook cholo, he said. And this cholo looks at this cholo looks at my, my this punk rocker Christian guy reading his Bible and he says, Hey, what are you reading? And the guy's like, Uh, I'm reading the Bible. And the guy says, Do you know what you have in your hands? Do you know what you have? That's God's word. That is the word of life. I was in jail and the word of God changed me. Do you know what you have in your hands? And the guy said, I just wanted to stand up and say, bro, let's go and tell everybody right now. (laughs) You see, gratitude for mercy and understanding of what Jesus has done for you and saving you, it is a powerful motivator for our life. And we need strong, enduring motivation. Because the Christian life, life is hard. Paul even likens it to a race, a long endurance race. The other week, um, I actually ran a 10K, the Anthony Half Marathon and 10K, and I didn't train for it, which was a really bad idea. <laughs> and halfway through the race, it's in Anthony, it's going up towards Anthony's Gap, and it's this long uphill. And about Three miles in, I'm looking at this long up straight away, and I said, what am I doing? This is hard. And I'll tell you what, no joke, as I'm running, I see behind me this woman who is running with two Boston Terriers that is catching me. And I look at those Boston Terriers, and I say, uh-uh, this is not happening. You're not catching me. And so I ran harder. You see, there is different motivations in, in, in the Christian life. Fear of losing to a woman with little dogs is one of them. But you know what? That will not get you very far. Fear of being the shame and of losing and all those things, that's not going to get you far. I put on the jets for a little bit, but it didn't last. You see, in the Christian life, Fear and shame, fear and shame will get you places. It will get you short results. You can guilt yourself, but you're not going to last very far. You're going to burn out. What you need is an enduring motivation. What I needed was joy to strengthen me up that hill. What I needed was strength. And where I, what I knew was that I had a little girl named Poppy Marie and a little son named Hebron who were standing at the at the end line waiting to give me hugs and kisses and who didn't care how fast I ran but they were waiting to hug me and love me and that made me run faster and that motivated me to the end of the race 
You see, the joy of the Lord is our strength. It is our enduring motivation. It is specifically the joy of knowing that Jesus receives you at His feet, that He hugs you with delight, that He loves you. And it is knowing His love which compels us forward. As the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, that we were guilty in our sin we have received grace in Jesus Christ. And so the entire Christian life is one that is out of grateful response. It's gratitude. See, this talk about joy and and of gratitude, it is not a denial of how difficult the Christian life can be. See, Jesus sums up the Christian life elsewhere as one of carrying our cross. The Christian life is one of self-denial. It is one of sacrifice. It's one of submitting to the Lordship of Jesus, bowing before Him. It's giving away our possessions. It's forgiving our enemies. It's unwavering chastity. It's being honest even when it's costly. It is all of these things. But it is the leper who joyfully submits to his Lord because he knows that Jesus loves him. He falls down at Jesus' feet, loved and forgiven, and so he can take up his cross of self-denial with thankfulness in his heart for his Savior. You see, the motivation for us is to know that Jesus has loved us, that he embraces us. Let's pray. Lord, strengthen our faith. Grant us mustard seed size faith. Grant us saving faith for those who don't have it. That they would just look at you, Jesus. And just cry out for you for mercy for all the sins that they know that they have. That they would recognize the cleansing that is offered in Jesus. Lord, for us who have walked with You for many years and the Christian life can seem a drudgery, restore unto us the joy of Your salvation that we might be strengthened to follow You. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.